He's an author, a speaker, a producer, talk show host, a podcast host. He's a friend of mine for over 20 years now. He's the guy that said I should do my own talk show. And I said, I don't blink so. That's, that's boring. <laughs> His name is John St. Augustine, and I am honored to have him on. He's, he sent me a new book, Phenomena, and I'll let you finish the rest of the name of it because there's a curse word in it. How you doing, John? I'm good, TJ. It's sure good to hear your voice. And uh, yeah, the the, the uh, subtitle of the book is Sacred Moments, Messages, Memories, and Other Shit I Can't Explain. <laughs> and you and I have, uh, well, you've shared a lot of those things with me over the years. And uh, we've I guess we both had many things go on. But how are you doing down in, mm-hmm. in Chicago with the COVID-19 and all that? Are people freaking out? What's going on? Well... You know, there's 9 million people in the greater or lesser Chicago area. And I think by and large, like any place relative to the population numbers that it's going as, as it needs to go. Um, the the things that I'm taking away from this are, are, are many. And the big one is that uh, you don't often see people helping each other out to the level that we are now in the headlines. You know, there's the headlines are one thing. But the lifelines are another thing, and that's where most of the good stuff happens, and it doesn't end up on the news. But what I've seen down here is how uh, we understand to a greater or lesser degree that we're all in – we may not all be in the same boat because some people have really nice boats and other people are just got a little rowboat, but we're all in the same ocean, and it affects us at different levels. So by and large, doing okay. Um, It is a little interesting and eerie. I was downtown about a week ago. Uh, I live uh, in a suburb just west of there, about 12 miles of the city. And I went downtown and there was like nobody on the streets. And I thought, is this like uh, the book of Eli? You know, what's going on here? But it, but it, it's uh, to see people do this, whether they like it or not, uh, that it benefits them in some way, shape or form. It helps the greater good, the cause without getting into all the, the left or right side of the conspiracy theories. It's good to see people doing it. Yeah, I think I'm hoping that after this ends, that maybe we, maybe some people at least, change the way they look at things and appreciate things, and we still continue to help each other and give to each other. That would be the great thing to come out of all this. I agree. I, I don't have that same hope that you do. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I, I don't. I think humans are very predictable until our survival is really threatened. I don't think that it's been threatened enough, quite mm. frankly, you know, uh, and, and I don't think this is the big one. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I think this is a test. I think this is a pop-up test. And and I have a friend of mine, I relate this to money. I have a friend of mine who says money doesn't change people. It, it just brings out who they are. And I think that it takes a lot to change belief systems and all that stuff. And until it affects us directly, it's not our problem. And if you're okay in this time and it hasn't affected you directly, then it's just out there. But when it's in your back pocket, that's when people tend to make real change and, uh, uh, so, you know, I, I'm always hopeful. I'm part of the human family, but I don't always get along with my brothers and sisters like mm. you do. Mr. Zen. <laughs> You're the Zen master. No, I'm not. No, I'm not, John. <laughs> so I know for years we talked about uh, you writing a book about some of your paranormal experiences, and you said, no, I'm not yeah. going to do that. And I say, John, that would be really cool. Remember those conversations I would have with you? Nope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I do. I do. No, listen, I'm sorry. And pe- what people are hearing now is how we talk, you know, off the air. We spent so many hours together in production and, and great conversations, and it's always a lot of fun. But you're right. You did. You said many times, I'm thinking, I don't even want to get into all that. 
and it wasn't even for a fact that I'm uh, concerned about putting it out into the world because when, as you know, when you're on the air and you're talking, whether you're doing, you know, the morning show or you're doing your podcast or whatever, people are going to hear what they're going to hear and they're going to like you, whether they, you know, whether you understand why or not. So even though I've written two other books, this one was far more personal. And so, uh, you're 100% correct. The reason I did it was in 2018, this nudge just would not leave me alone. It was like pushing on me like a pressure to do this for whatever reason. And I started going back to the things and making a list of stuff that was that you and I have spoken about and I've talked with, with other people. And, and that's about it. This was not things I talked about on the radio. I never did a podcast about them. I never really got into them. They were very personal to me uh, to, to a great new level of like um, – why would, why would I go put this out into the world? What's the point? And then I realized as this nudge was pushing on me, the point was it maybe gave permission for people to look at their own lives, not so much my experiences, but maybe things that happened in their own life they couldn't explain, and maybe there were some things they could take away from that. And that's exactly what happened. The feedback from this book is more than I've ever had from my first two. Did it surprise you that maybe a lot of people had these kind of experiences and they just were afraid to speak up? Uh, I don't know if surprise was the right way to put it. I was wondering, and before the book was even written, I have a friend of mine came visit me. I was in the Coast Guard for four years, and you know a rough tumble bunch, just like in any other branch of the service. And this guy was at my came to visit me. I, I named Gary, and he and I served together in 1980, a very long time ago. And we've stayed in touch here and there over the years. He lives in Florida. He was in Chicago visiting family, and he came over one day. And we were just sitting on my office having a beer. And he said, so what are you working? I said, well, I got this, you know, this book thing. I'm kind of going here and there. And I thought, well, let me just try it out on him. Now, again, you know, every other word out of his mouth is F this and F that, right? So on the surface, this isn't the kind of guy you would think would connect with this. And I kind of told him what was going on. And he says, you're not going to believe this, but hmm. I've been getting messages from my parents for 20 years after they died. I think it's incredible. Wow. So. I knew if a guy like that could connect with what I was talking about, then there was a reason to move forward. And there's been a lot of that. So I don't know if I was surprised. I'm a little surprised that people are willing to, you know, let me know. Uh, some of the book reviews have been just, they floor me. They floor me. So it was the right thing to do. So this is a book that's really, it deals with, uh, obviously, your experiences dating back to when you were, uh, what age you had your first, uh, would you say, I know you had the, that electrocution. That's when everything kind of changes yeah. when you were a young guy? No question. Uh, up until that point, you need to get the phone, I can hear it. Yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> I don't have to get it anymore. Who could it? I wonder who's calling. <laughs> it's a toll-free number, and I can guarantee you they, they're going to try to get me to buy something or whatever. So yeah. getting back to, the, how old were you when you got... Uh, I'll let you tell the story of, of how you sure. almost died. I just turned 19 in December uh, of 1978. So this was January of uh, 70, going into 79. So it was just a month after my 19th birthday. And um, I was working at a, a drugstore here in Chicago. And it was a Friday night. I was in college at the time. I, I was on a football scholarship. And I was, you know, Joe All-American or John All-American, however you want to look at it. And I, I thought my life was pretty well set. And, uh, you know, it's, I, of course, I played in the NFL, right? Who wouldn't? I'm, I'm the perfect guy to do that. And everything was heading that direction, even though I had a, a, a pretty difficult knee uh, injury when I was in high school that probably prompted that to not happen. But in my mind, I still thought I was heading that direction. And um, I had not done well 
in the academic end of things at college, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much like Animal House. So I was working this job because my, my full scholarship had been knocked onto a partial scholarship because of my grades. And I was working extra time to make up the money to, to pay uh, tuition. And on a Friday night in January, uh, I uh, was throwing a bunch of mach- boxes in a machine that smashes and makes like a bale of hail out of them and you throw them out in the back of the, the store and the machine malfunctioned and I got electrocuted. And we had been told there was problems with the machine. Uh, and of course, you know, at 19, you're bulletproof and I kind of sloughed it off and I pressed this button and that was the end of it. And that was the end of me at that point. I think it was the end of me on some level as who I was at that point in my life. Uh, and I woke up with this guy, Mike, who had been in Vietnam 10 years earlier, uh, beating me on the chest to wake me up. And this, this half circle of young ladies crying and screaming. And I obviously didn't know what the hell had happened. And what, has, what had occurred was I had touched the inner workings of a, a very large piece of electrical equipment and it stopped my heart. And, and I remember at one point, the last conscious thought I ever had was that I'm dead, that, that this is it for me. And it wasn't, thank God. Uh, but what followed from that was, I, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, TJ, that it, it rewired or reconnected something that that wasn't in use up to that point. And a month later to the day, after going through, you know, three weeks in the hospital, a bunch of other stuff, I was back at home. And I was sitting watching television on a Friday evening. <clears throat> I think it was a Friday. I can't remember. But it was a month to the day of when the, the, the thing had happened, uh, date-wise. And this huge feeling of uh, pins and needles, like when your hand falls asleep, came over my whole body. I started at my toes and worked all the way to my head, to the top of my head. And boom, it's just like, it just like exploded on me. And I, I looked at the clock and it was exactly, exactly the same time a month earlier that this accident happened. This incident is what it was. And I knew right then something was up and that feeling uh, has never left me. There are certain times when I get like a heads up on something and this, this happens and I was never comfortable with it. I've all, and I, to this day, and I write in the book many times, I don't like this. Hmm. I would much rather just, Crack a cold bear, go visit my buddy TJ, sit <laughs> on the porch and count the train cars. I really would. But but this is what's been given to me. And if I don't use it, I tend to lose it. And I've seen um, the results of when I do use it, that it's helped people. So I continue on. I'm not a psychic. I don't, I don't know the lottery numbers. It's nothing like that. It's just this, this rewiring that took place that allows at certain times for certain reasons, most of which, do, which don't show up for years, um, that there's a purpose for me to have this. And these, these, all the uh, events and experiences I write about phenomenon uh, show that there's purpose in it for me. And that's the only reason I even, you know, kind of stay with it. Well, I think what's really cool to read in this book, and I think I, re- I recall every one of the stories, but I forgot about them, um, is mm. the connections that you have to make. And it's like with all of us, too, because that's happened to me many times, is this journey. you got to have a good memory because... It might lead you with the here, and then a, a month yeah. later lead you somewhere else, and eventually it, it kind of makes sense if you stay on it. And sometimes it yeah. doesn't make sense. Sometimes you just don't know. What are some of the favorite, or do you have one that comes to your top of your mind that, that you uh, want to share with? Because there's so many in the, in the book to share, but what is one maybe that you really, really like? Jeez. Well, the one that's the most prevalent to me and happened right in the UP uh, and I wrote about this in the first book, Living on Common Life. The last chapter in that first book is about 
uh, unfortunately, the, the sad passing of Chelsea Hewitt and, and Tim Watchko in a car accident in 2002, or 2004, I believe it was. And um, that was difficult. Uh, I had been on the air at the time, as you know, with you guys, and, and uh, this accident happened in Gladstone, and Chelsea Hewitt was going to sing the national anthem at uh, a basketball game. It was a very cold and snowy, typical UP night. And uh, they never got there. A logging truck hit them broadside. Uh, Chelsea died at the scene. And Tim lasted a day or two, uh, was airlifted to Green Bay, and he passed away and was an organ donor and saved, you know, nine people's lives because of it. And these are just 16 and 17-year-old kids. And I know you remember this. Uh, we, went, we were on the air next day, just planned on talking for a little bit. We were on for four hours. And we, uh, myself and Anne-Marie, who was my producer at the time, we just took call after call. And the, the outpouring of emotion, uh, from their death was just, and I said to you, I remember saying this to you the next day, TJ, if this is the only thing I ever did in radio or the only reason I showed up in radio, then I'm good with it. Well, of course, there's been a lot more than that. But the, the story in the book happened years later. So uh, in, in book two, Every Moment Matters, there's a chapter called The Naked Men's Club. Right. You and I have had these conversations. Right. And the, the Naked Men's Club is a uh, sauna that is in the in the yard of uh, the father of Chelsea Hewitt, and there's also one in uh, Tim Watchko's dad uh, Dennis's place. And these were both these saunas were built out of the difficulty and pain of these men losing their children. And for years, the first couple years after this happened, uh, myself and a couple other guys uh, would go in and sit with Dennis every Wednesday night for two years straight and just listen to him cry. And then after about two years, Doug decided to build a sauna, and we, we built that one, and his is very different than Dennis's. Dennis's will pull, suck the, every ounce of water right out of you, and somehow Doug's is a little bit bigger. It's, it's built different. While, while you sweat profusely, it injects you with, with water, in my opinion. It's just a very interesting phenomenon. So this has been going on for years, and every Wednesday we never missed a year for 10 years. And uh, about five years ago, uh, we were doing this, this sauna on a Wednesday night, and Doug was in there. And as it, as it tells in the story, the other guys that were there is uh, Padre Paul, who is a Lutheran minister. And it looks like he should play for the Packers. He's like 6'4", 295 on a, on a light day. <laughs> and so he takes up a lot of room. I'm no, no midget, so I take up a lot of room. And then there was Doug and Dwayne Kennard, who I know that you know. Right. And we're sitting in the sauna, and Doug is talking about how upset he is because a family friend in Texas was having a recurring dream where Chelsea would show up in the dream. Uh, they're in the auditorium at the Gladstone High School, and uh, Chelsea walks out on the stage. And oh, I'm sorry, Doug walks out on the stage and keeps saying, I can't find Chelsea. Now, this has got to be, you know, 12, 14 years after she died. And this dream is in this young lady's, you know, life all the time. So Doug walks out on the stage. I can't find Chelsea. Can you all help me? And then all of a sudden Chelsea walks out on the stage and says, here I am, dad. And they hug and she wakes up. Now it's a nice dream, wow. but Doug's pissed. Yeah. Doug's pissed because he's not having the dream and he feels left out. So he's going on and on talking about all this. And I'm kind of off to the side. Now you got to remember, we kept it about 180 to 190 degrees in there. So it's pretty good cooking. And I'm laying off to the side and the Padre and Dwayne are talking with him and Dwayne is Native American Ojibwa. He, he's a drum keeper. He comes from a very spiritual, deep Native American uh, cultural thing. Mm -hmm. And he's giving his thoughts on what's going on. 
and the Padre is coming from a more organized religion, Lutheran, uh, ordained type of thing, and both are valuable. They're talking to him, but he ain't getting it, and he doesn't want to get it. Doug's kind of like, you know, I don't give a you-know-what what either one of you are talking about. I'm in pain here. And as they're talking, I'm laying on my side, just minding my own business, and all of a sudden, behind Doug, the wall of the lo- of the of the sauna is starting to look like cre- crimson red, like red. I'm like, what? What is that? Hmm. And I'm thinking it's the red glow from the fire, uh, from the, the furnace that's in there, where the, where we feed the thing and make the pores and all that. So I'm thinking, well, that wouldn't be behind him. That would be on him. This is this is a definitive glow right behind Doug. What is that? And I realized, I thought, well, that's like like his aura or something. There's something going on with this, and they can't see it. I'm like, I ain't telling anybody nothing. And when these things happen to me, my first initial reaction is, I ain't saying shit to anybody. Because <laughs> I don't want to, well, seriously, I'm like, I, don't, I got nothing here. So this goes on for a little bit, and I roll over to the other side to, to kind of cool off and not actually not see it. And as soon as I rolled over, I hear a clear female voice say, Go look in the window. Uh, what was this? And I, I really uh, I said out loud, what, what was that? And the voice repeats itself. It says, go look in the window. Now, there's a bunch of windows in this place. There's the window on the door that we go in. There's mm-hmm. a little sliding window at the front. There's a window on the door. And I'm thinking in my rational mind, I'm supposed to go look at the window that was Chelsea's bedroom, which is on the house in the yard, you know, 50 yards away up on the second floor to the right towards the garage. Okay, I'll go just excuse myself and go look at the window. And they're still yapping away and doing their thing, and it's fine, and, you know, it's how we get going in there. And I excuse myself, I rinse off, I, I walk out into the main dressing area, I've got my towel, and my first look is at the little sliding window that we use to vent it, and there's oh, whatever, and I'm getting ready to walk out into the yard. And on the inside of the door... That we, that's the entrance and exit to this little holy place. Uh, on the inside is all this condensation because it was so cold outside, but warm inside. And on the window pane, in the condensation, it was as if someone took their finger and from the top down wrote I-L-U-V-D-A-D. Hmm. I about shit myself. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and I... I I dropped to my knees, my mouth got real dry, and I looked up again, and it says, I love, and there was a, a U there, I-L-U-V-U-D-A-D. Now, TJ, none of us walked out of that, there's only four of us there. Right. No one walked out in the change room to do anything. There was nobody home that night. Nobody walked in from the house and heard us and go, oh, I'll go do this. Nobody around. Nobody. And so I walked back into the, to the sauna where the fellows were still jabbing away, and I said, stop. I said, Doug, there's something you need to see. He walks out. We all walk out with him, and he literally falls, like, to the ground. It's still there. We all see it. Hmm. I see it. Dwayne sees it. The Padre sees it. And Doug just falls apart. Hmm. And I remember asking him if he was okay, and he said, you know, I am now. He literally sat there kneeling, sweating, on the concrete ground, and we all kind of just got dressed around him and just made our way out the door. I don't know how long he stayed in there. So this is an experience that we all, and that was one of the things that I wanted to make sure was in the book. These aren't things that just happened one-on-one to me with no proof. There's three other guys that saw this. Yeah. And the lesson that came for me was, you know, when, you, when the veil's real thin and 
someone's in pain, like a father or a mother, uh, for whatever reason, somehow, some way, uh, the energy, the life units that we all have are able to transform time and space and uh, give a little peace. And, it, it, and to this day, and I write in the chapter, and I called Doug three times, are you sure it's okay? He goes, John, anytime that Chelsea's mentioned, I'm good. And, you know, so this isn't like, again, this is isn't this just the, something that happened to me. Is this the only time that Doug, you know, talking to Doug, that he's ever felt like her presence or anything around? Uh, I don't, I think this is the most profound one. I think that his wife has had some experiences. People around him have had experiences. I don't know. I think this is the most direct thing that ever happened. He always felt like, you know, she's around. You say that, you know, I can feel her here or there. But this was the most direct connection uh, that he's ever had. And, and to me, you know, he's, he's the, I don't know how you get back up after you lose a child that way. I don't know how they do it or the watch goes do it. Anybody else has lost a child that way. But then you look at the concept of loss. And say what's really going on here and mm -hmm. and how what is life about and so the book is filled they're not all like that some are similar uh but that's the one that when you ask me is most profound is, is is it wasn't just me it was me and three other guys who i respect immensely and miss terribly because we don't i'm not there for the naked men's cliff anymore right uh but that's the one that comes to mind you know and, and to also add to that story which i don't know if i ever told you but i remember robin doug's wife uh right after chelsea uh died in that mm -hmm accident they were trying to get a yeah. a light put in at that intersection which is a pretty dangerous intersection Correct. and so she was coming to talk on the air and we were on the third floor back then in the old building and mm -hmm. she told me when she had a really good feeling about this light coming forward she felt that was one way that they could maybe help others and she said when she got to the second floor to come to do that interview that day with me she smelled chelsea's perfume and she hadn't smelled mm. smelled that in a while, so it was just like confirmation, and all those kind of things yeah. going on. And it's always curious because you wonder how many other people have had um, some kind of encounter, but maybe people just don't talk to each other. And I think we should. Well, sure. Who listen? I I do too, and that's why what you do is so important because it gives a platform for people to talk about this. Look, guys like you and me, we're pretty used to airing it out no matter what. We you know you got to have a pretty thick skin to be on radio. I don't care what you're doing. So. You know, at some point, it's like, you know, whatever. You don't have to agree with me. It doesn't matter. But go back to my friend Gary, who was sitting here saying, you know, I, I feel my pre my parents have been checking in on me for 20 years. You know, so I think a lot of people have these, but they don't feel comfortable, you know, doing that. And once word got out that I was doing this book, fam Family and Friends, I was inundated. Not that I'm going to write their stories because I didn't experience them. But they were all like, well, here's what happened to me. I had this picture frame kept falling off of my mom's and I can't explain it. And didn't feel comfortable telling anybody. So, you know, this isn't going to change the world, but that's not the point. This book is to help people change their own world and see it a little different, you know, maybe while we're here. Well, I think if we every everybody probably has some kind of experience or, or can, unless you truly shut that off. I think there this mm -hmm. division between our world and the world we really come from, which is really just home when you think about it, at least the way True. I perceive it. True, I agree. So it's not a big deal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is when you lose someone, but really, it, 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 they're sure. more at home than we are. <laughs> they're probably feeling sorry for us because look what they're stuck with down there. Now they got a pandemic. Right. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I can yeah. feel their pain. Yeah. So I think a book like yours, which I read all the way through, is phenomenal because it can be healing. And I just hence love the, this. Hence the title, huh? Hence the title. <laughs> but also, phenomenal. But I would also say that what I really like about your book is the connection.
Because very few people, I think, sometimes you might get a sign or something might happen. And if you don't take the time to try to follow the next step, a good example is when you were out in Colorado. Do you mind telling that story? Because I love that story oh about the the young, was it the young kid? Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So uh, this is in, you know, again, so the years don't always line up for me, but uh, it was in the, I got to think, my son was a year old, so like in 1993, somewhere there, uh, late 92, maybe 93. And uh, John Denver, longtime buddy of mine, and he was doing this big Windstar event every year. And eventually I spoke there in 1994. But before all that, I would go out to this big symposium. And this particular year, uh, my family, my wife at the time, and my two kids, we drove, we were going to drive out to Colorado for this event. And we had, my son was only maybe a year old, year and a half, somewhere in there. And, uh, by the way, shout out to him. He still lives in Marquette. He's the only, he's the lone youper left in the family. So mm. he's still up there. Good for him. And um, yeah, I, I love visiting him. They got a great coffee place up there. We sit around and have a good time. But anyway, I digress. Uh, we got him checked out for this long trip. Doctor's like, all good, no problems. Got his shots. He's ready to go. We leave Chicago. We're driving down through Kansas, then out to Colorado. And we got into Kansas. And the next morning, I noticed that there was something different about him. That He, he didn't look good. Oh, whatever. We just, the doctor, and as we're driving along, I'm keeping an eye on him in the rear view mirror. He's sitting in his car seat and, you know, something is obviously wrong. By the time we got to a place called Sterling, Colorado, I pulled into the hospital to the emergency room because it was literally like he was starting to disintegrate, like, like, like his skin was coming off him and, and he, you know, he's obviously miserable and was not working out. So we take him in there and, you know, after a thorough and exam they're like you know whatever's going on with him is external he internally he's fine i'm like i could have told you that hmm. what's wrong with this kid they could not explain he was like decomposing is, is the, what kept coming to mind that ain't good but we're you know we're in colorado now and we got a I think it's an eight hour it's like four hours from sterling to denver i made it in half the time or whatever and we get to denver and we check into a hotel and he's just miserable and we put him in the tub and we try to cool him down and help a little bit. And I'm like, okay, now what do we do? It's a four hour drive from Denver to Aspen. So we drive there and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. We get to this lodge. I was working on a magazine at the time and with a magazine at the time. And I was covering this lodge uh, in exchange for, you know, one of their nice rooms. And I was going to write a review for it and all that kind of stuff. So the, this truck is loaded with, you know, a week's worth of, of family stuff. We're now up in Snowmass Lodge at this wonderful lodge to stay, and uh, he's disintegrating in front of us. So the, the next morning after we got there, we decided they got to go home. You know, it took 18 hours to drive there. Wow. And so I put the family on a plane. I waved goodbye from the Pitkin County Airport, and off they go. And they were home in, you know, three hours, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do for the next week by myself? So I'm in this room, and... I got all this stuff. And so I go to the symposium every day and I've been checking, you know, we didn't have cell phones then, but I check at him at home and he was getting better, but they still couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. So go through the whole three or four days, whatever it was with the, with the event. But every time I would leave the lodge, the Snowmass Lodge and drive towards Aspen, it's about eight, nine miles uh, to the event. There were these tire tracks that went up into the mountains and they were like, I got to go up there. I'm like, I ain't going up there. First of all, this truck that I have is an Explorer. It's not mine. It's from a car dealer in Chicago. The very last thing I would do is pull an axle or the muffler off, mm. driving up to the Rocky Mountains, right? right? So the last day, 
kind of condensing all this last hand there. Uh, it was a great week with, with John and John Denver, and it was a beautiful event, and it was wonderful. I'm glad I stayed. I called, and, you know, again, Andy's on the mend, and whatever was going on with him is, is still going on, but it's not as bad as it was. And uh, I'm driving back in that night late uh, before I was going to head up to Chicago the next morning, and these tracks, I'm like, I have to go up there. And the rational, logical side of me is like, can't go up there. So I have this fight. I get up in the morning. I'm getting ready to leave. And I'm like, ugh. So with the truck loaded, I've already checked out of the, the, the lodge. I drive up these tire tracks up into the Rocky Mountains. And it's, it's a pretty you – know, I had to put it in four-wheel drive, and up I go. Hmm. I come to the very top, and it's gorgeous view of the Roaring Fork Valley. And I'm like, wow, this is – but you know what? I could get this view all the way back to Chicago, hmm. so what's the deal? I, I go to make a turnaround to go back down, and I see a sign. And it says uh, Snowmass Cemetery. And so I pull in there to make the loop and I stop and I look. Again, I get out of the truck this time and I look and I, this is just a wonderful, wonderful view. If you're going to have to spend eternity somewhere, this is the place to freaking do it. I mean, I don't know what you can see or not see, but this was just beautiful. And as soon as, as soon as I said that, I hear clear as a bell a voice say, I like it here. Hmm. <laughs> what? That could be him calling now. <laughs> I hear the phone. <laughs> but so so what happened was I happened to mosey over to this headstone, and there's uh, there's a, a young man was buried. Not, his name's in the, not in the book. I didn't use his real name. And there's these toys and stuff laid out by here. And I thought this kid, he was only maybe six, eight months old when he died. And, and I just sat there, and for the next 45 minutes or so, there was this conversation mentally in my head with what I would assume was the spirit of this young kid saying, I like it here. You know, you have, but the big thing that came out of it was what he wanted me to do. And you've read the book, so you know, and you've already probably knew this story. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to find his parents and tell his parents that it wasn't their fault that he died, that this is, was his path. This is how it was supposed to go. And even more so that within a year or so, his mom, there would be another child. I didn't know if it was, you know, him reincarnated or what, but I'm supposed, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. You've got to be kidding me. Well, how are you, you going to find out, how are you going to find the parents? Well, exactly. Exactly. I don't know many people there. I mean, I mean, you know, and, and so, uh, so I get back in the truck, uh, whatever, and I drive back down and I think, okay. So I go back into the, the lodge and I, and I say, can I have my room back for about another half hour? I just, you know, oh, sure, no problem. I go back to the room. And again, sometimes I think the audacity I had when these things were happening when I was younger was just ridiculous. But I called three funeral homes to see if anybody had done the funeral for this young boy. And I think the first or second one, you know, no answer, thank God. And I thought, well, if I do this and nobody answers, then I'm, I'm out of here. The third one answered and uh, I t gave the name. And the guy's like, well, yes, I, I did do that. It's been about a year, I think it's been, whatever. And he said, why do you want to know? <laughs> I thought, mm -hmm. shit, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, humma, humma, humma. I said, listen, this is my name. Here's where I'm at. Here's the number of the room. Just please, if you can reach his parents and tell them uh, to call me, it would be good. And he, you know, he must have thought, and I thought, what are you, an idiot? Yeah. So I waited 15 minutes, no phone call. I'm done with this. I go downstairs. I go sit in the lobby for a few minutes, collect myself. And 
about a year earlier, I had spent six, seven months in Aspen working to help get a gym up and running that was in downtown Aspen. And one of the women that I hired as a trainer was a young woman. And I'm sitting in the lobby and she walks right in front of me. And I called out to her name. I didn't use her real name in the story. Haven't seen her since. And I said, you know, she goes, oh, my God, John, what are you doing here? So we sit down and talk, and it was on me. I'm like, listen, i got to tell somebody what's going on here. Uh, you're going to think I'm nuts, but here's the deal. She sat and listened the whole time, and the more I talked, the more emotional she got. And then she finally stopped, put her hand on my arm, and said, I know his parents. Sure. And I thought, on one hand, uh, great relief. And on the other hand, I said, tag, you're it. I, I've, I've delivered the mail the best I can, and whatever happens from this point on, I leave with you. Would you be okay with that? She said, yes. I mean, I'm getting emotional talking about this. This is 30 mm -hmm. years ago, yeah. almost. And uh, on the way from Chicago, and then when I left that room, all that energy was gone. It was just I drove out, didn't feel like I needed to go up. I started driving back to Chicago. No cell phones, as I mentioned. Probably every 10 hours, uh, it was like, you know, two days I stopped on the way back. I didn't drive it straight through, but I called from a payphone. I called her number and said, have you heard it? You know, have you done it yet? No, I haven't. I don't have it. And she's got to work herself up to talk to these people. Right. I mean, how does she go in and right. say this? Right. So I let it be maybe two weeks later. She finally called me and said, I did it. I went and talked to the parents. Uh, they were so grateful. They were very emotional as you can imagine. And, um, you know, and I delivered the mail. So, it gave a measure of comfort to these people. I, I don't know how you overcome that. And, and I don't want to be too high-minded, like, oh, it's no big deal. It's a big damn deal to lose somebody. It is. And we're supposed to feel like this when somebody dies. We, we care about and we love and a child or what have you or a parent. But there's something more to all this. And whatever measure of comfort I think was to give given to them, uh, it had to go that way. So that's one of the ones that, you know, I don't ever want to duplicate that. I, I have the... the um, the real boy's name, I keep it close to me as a reminder of why I get a chance to do these things. But, uh, I, I, again, I prefer just to go sit and have a cold one if you get my drift. Well, and then and the part you didn't, I don't think you mentioned, was that they did have a child, mm -hmm. right? They did. She did let me know a year later, <clears throat> excuse me, she did let me know a year later that uh, the, the, the mom, they had another little kid and you know, I don't get into the whole reincarnation, all kind of stuff, but I do know that, that did come true. And so how would I know these things from a kid that I'd never met that only lived a few months sitting on, in, in a cemetery? I can't tell you. But as we talked about in the beginning, I, I'm sure that all of this comes from that electrical incident that I was here and that I wasn't and that that has stayed with me. And it's like a switch. You know, when it's supposed to happen, it does. There are far more times, TJ, that I, I turn it off than leave it on, meaning I don't want to get into it. And I have that choice. So the ones that are in the book are mostly the ones that I said yes to, and some are more are funnier than others. There's a guy who was a, a pro wrestler, a friend of mine. He was part of the Road Warriors tag team, and we, we hung out for a couple of years, and I worked with these guys, and he died. I was living in the UP when he passed away. Mike Hegstrand, Road Warrior Hawk, drove across the UP through Minnesota. There was his funeral. It was very sad, uh, difficult. I drove back a couple of days later, and when I got home, I thought, I just, if, you know, like everything, anybody else, I hope he's okay. If I knew he was okay, he died at 46, then I'd feel better as a friend. And one night, the, the very same night I said that out loud, God, I just, if I knew he was okay, at 2.58 in the morning, my phone rings. Next to the bed, I answer it. Hello, hello, nobody there, click. No big deal. Next night, 2.59, the phone rings. Hello, 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 nobody there, click. 
next night, 3 o'clock in the morning, and then 301. And by this time, I'm thinking there's somebody at a bar locally that's just got my number and it's just screwing with me. I mean, that's what I think. And finally, the, the fourth night or fifth night at 302 in the morning, the phone rings. It dawned on me because I had called the phone company. I said, I'm getting these phone calls in the middle of the night. Can you tell me what number? And they're like, we have no record of that. Wow. What? Wait, what? The phone's ringing. Well, sir, it could be. I'm like, if you don't have a, an outside call coming in, then what the hell's going on here? And then I remembered what I said, on the, and I think it was the 302 or 303 in the morning on that fifth night or fourth night, whatever it was. I, I, when the phone rang, I said, Mike, thanks for letting me know you're okay. Phone never rang again. Hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. You know, the support also what you said about having that, I guess it was, you would call it a near-death experience, right, John, when you got electrocuted? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was definitely gone and back, so how was I near-death or more near-life? I don't really know. But I know that people, I, I have several friends that became much more psychic. It's like something happens, mm. and I don't know what it is. Some mm. have even told me they've gone to a place where they found, first they saw like a tunnel, and they went, and they could, they saw their body being worked on while they were, mm. they left out of their body, they went to this light, they met up with an angelic type being, they saw this beautiful scenery, this land that they didn't, and they felt this love, and they didn't want to leave. And mm -hmm. they were told, well, you still have things to do. And so generally that's the story that I've heard from more than one person. And they came back. But they didn't realize right away some of these people had incredible healing gifts. All of them yeah. had amazing, I would call psychic gifts, ability to sense and see things. And so I don't know why that is. You have to get electrocuted or nearly die. <laughs> Gee, isn't that great? Yeah, no, you know, I, I didn't have any of those. You know, the second time that this happened to me or I participated in this event was in 1986 after at a very severe car accident. Same thing. You're gone. Shouldn't be here. Hit by a drunk driver. Uh, they cover me up. I have no pulse. And then I'm back. So after the second time, I think I better freaking start listening here because I don't want the third one. And the third <laughs> one might be I don't come back. But I never had any experience of, of like going to the light or seeing anything or I had none of that. Mine was very cut and dried. I think for me, my experience has been talking with people who've had similar things, that it's almost unique unto us is our personality. I'm a very, as you know, blunt, cut and dried, black and white, here's the deal, person. I think that was how it was shown to me. That's how I interpreted it. Somebody else who's not like that maybe obviously had a different experience, mm. but I never I never felt like I was pulled to the light and then pulled back. I didn't have any experiences of that. Mine was just like a book, like on one page you're here and now you're not, and then you're back and here's how it's going to be and you can say yes or no. It was very cut and dried. You know, and you've told me this before and it's one of the things that I did actually listen to you. One of the few things. <laughs> no, I've listened to a lot. Yeah, of I know. Just, there's four, four times you've actually listened to anything I've ever said. No, but you told me before that, <laughs> uh, you know, when, <clears throat> when things happen and you're good, such a good example of this, not just paranormal things, neither, but when... It's like the universe knocks on your door and you have a choice to listen to it or say, nah, I'm not going to get that. Go away. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's when you make that choice is when the door opens and many wonderful things can come out of it. Some of the things I totally didn't want to do in my life. It's like, oh, I'm tired. I just want to go home and I'm getting some kind of message or signal or whatever. And I, I wind up going and doing it. 
and it's one of the greatest, it's some of the greatest rewards I've ever had, or it, it maybe helped yep. others in some other way. So to me, it's about the stories that you tell. A lot of them are just, you get this inkling, and then who would go and do the things you did and follow through? Very few people yeah. probably would do that, but the reward is amazing. And you don't even really know a lot of times no. what, what the reward is. I was on a conference call this morning uh, about a radio project that's has a lot of uh, possibility. I'm not talking about financially or anything like that, but in the big picture, it's an, an important thing that could uh, take place. And, and um, when I got the phone call about it, uh, I was talking with people who don't know me as well as the, the person who brought me on board. And, and he said, you know, just tell them a little bit of how you got into radio. And, and, and you know this, you know, I wouldn't even be doing any of this had I not walked from the UP to Chicago and back. And this voice says, go on the radio. What the hell? What? I had no experience in this. I didn't care about any of this. It didn't mean anything to me. But I was, I was totally stripped down to the bare bones of the walk to Chicago and back so many years ago in 96 with Dwayne and Joe Johnson uh, stripped me down to nothing, which is where things can be rebuilt. But the walk down was the peeling back of the layers of John, the guy that I used to be in some ways, and the walk back alone with myself, but not really alone for the first time in my life was kind of adding the new layers back. And it was outside of Oconomowoc on one day. And it's just, I could hear it clear, like, like it was a radio, like, how can everybody not hear this? John, go on the radio. And a friend of mine picked me up outside of um, near Beaver Dam. I got in her car. Barry Farber was on the radio in New York. And I said, I'm supposed to do what this guy does. And she knows me. She goes, what are you nuts? Hmm. Are you, are, you know, are you delirious? And I came back and I was, you know, we were living in the UP at the time in that little motel. And I opened the phone book. And I started calling, who does that? Calling radio stations with no experience saying I'm supposed to get on the radio and I don't want to just beat politics and sports to the ground. And everybody said, everybody said, except one, nobody's going to ever listen to you because all that matters is politics and sports. And I thought, well, how I voted in my favorite football team isn't going to help me get out of this hotel room, hmm. right? Yeah. So you know this story. And so that it went from there on and on and on. And now here I am 20 plus years later and all the things that I've been able to accomplish were dormant in me that I didn't even know I had until I said, yes, I'll get in the motel and call radio stations cold out of a phone book. Everybody does that. So here we are. That's where it's led you down that road. And, you were, and it's been one thing after another. That's, you went on mm -hmm. to work with Oprah Winfrey. What year was that? Mm-hmm. The first year at uh, Oprah Radio was 2006. I started on radio. My first air date was August 12th of 97. I went into two, until 2002, as I mentioned, you and I talked off the air earlier, uh, that I donated a kidney to my daughter, Amanda Lee. In 2002, I took two years off. I came back. And then I was sitting in the studio at RRN one day. And there was a guy, I can't remember his name. It was a guest, Dave, can't remember his name. Uh, he was he had been on my show, and then two days later was on Oprah's show, and I was watching on the monitor uh, in the studio the television of her, her show, and I was kiddingly thinking to myself, oh, she's stealing my guest because mm. he was just out with me two days ago, and I knew her a little bit already, uh, but after that I sat in my studio and I I literally wrote out the Oprah Radio Network on a on a sheet of paper, like two pages. Da -da -da -da. This is I'm like because Howard Stern had already been hired by XM or brought on by XM Sirius. They were two separate entities at the time. And I thought they're going to come for her at some point. 
And I literally wrote off the Oprah Radio Network. And in August of 2004, I went down to Chicago, met with Oprah and Tim Bennett, who was the president of Harpo at the time, and a couple other friends that were all mutual. And I said, here's, here's, what you, here's what's coming. And they're like, what? I said, this is what's coming. And uh, they said, this is great, but uh, it's, you know, we're TV. We don't know much about this. And so after that meeting, it was good to see her again. I had met her a few times before. We went to a building across the street that was owned by the Comedy Network as a studio. And we had a little after meeting there. And I said, well, this is, you know, I just, this is what I know. Two years went by. I was cutting the grass in the Upper Peninsula for two years when I got a phone call one day that they were indeed starting this Oprah thing was cranking up. They had hired a guy from Chicago to be the GM. And I got a call from him and said, let's come down and talk. And I went and met with him at lunch. And I brought my brag book down and all my tapes and what everybody thought I was so great and all this stuff. And he goes, I know who you are. And I know what this is all about. He goes, so, but I can't put you on the radio. I said, well, what am I doing here besides having free lunch? He goes, come on, let me take you back to our And then I'll explain it. TJ, we went to the same building that I had met with these people with two years earlier before they even owned it. Hmm. Same building. And so the long and short of it was, you know, I agreed to do that and come on as a senior producer for Dr. Oz, Gene Chatsky, Bob Green, a bunch of other people. Uh, the power thoughts that people used to hear at the UP, those carried over to the Oprah Network, and those were great. And then eventually I had my own show on her, and I was there from 6 to 10. I drove back and forth in the UP every week for four years. So um, it was a, quite an experience. It was one of the highest paid internships I ever had and how not to do things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's amazing how, how it all fell in line, and it, it just echoed, I think, the course that I guess, you know, we can choose many different courses, but I think we... We have several paths that we can take when we're here, and I think we can also alter those paths while we're here. But sometimes you just know, like you said, when when you start getting into radio. So after Oprah, what happened after that? So I did that, like I said, for a couple of years, for four years, and then I thought, you know, uh, my time there was really done. My job was to help some guy named Doctor Oz get ready for TV. I don't ever what happened to him. I'm not really sure. Have you yeah. ever heard? Is he yeah, do I okay? I don't think he did much after that. He kind of bottomed up. But um, so once that was done, it was time for me to leave that. And I, I thought, well, God, I'm not going to be out of work long because, you know, this is Harpo and blah, blah, blah. And this was the second peeling back. There was another time where there was a, a deep evisceration of the life that I used to have and a, a divorce followed. And uh, it was time to, you know, I, 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 we lived in that motel in 96 for a year. And then I ended up back in that same motel with my friends Bruce and Pat Hardwick for another year. It was a very difficult time for me. And I couldn't find work anywhere. But again, I realized it was another peeling away of the layers of myself. And then eventually I, I was uh, brought on to WGN in Chicago. And I did a couple of years there and really enjoyed it. You know, for a kid growing up here in Chicago to be on WGN in constant rotation was just, you know, the only thing I wish my folks were here to hear it, you know, mm-hmm. that they were, they were alive. They never did. Uh, but it was a great, uh, it was back to regular, quote, traditional radio for me, things that you and I know so well. And I was just so uh, enjoyed it. And then I bounced around a couple other places here and there. And then the podcasting thing happened. And, and here we are. So now the podcast has become my radio show. I, I do it four to six times a month, much like you do. Um, and I, I just get the biggest kick out of, of uh, continuing. So you and I know this because we're, we're broadcasters and we're, we're pros and we do what we do. And so for me, it's always been I got to do what I'm supposed to, what I'm called to do wherever I'm at. So even though I've faltered a few times on the path, I've never wavered from it. So I'm, 
you know, just put up a podcast recently with Bill Curtis on Earth Day, and I'm talking to people from all over the place. I have subscribers in Scotland and Australia and, and South Africa, and the chance to talk to the world from my desk is something that I didn't have the opportunity to do when I started in 19, Bill Clinton was president. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's pretty cool. I mean, like, like you're saying, you can have people from all over the world that can listen to your show, and they can even interact with you. Um, and, you know, the one thing about podcasting is generally it's pre-recorded, although I know some people that do more like a live show, and I'm just not crazy about mm -hmm. the quality, so I'd rather pre-record a show. And then, too, I always tell people, yeah, yeah. you know, if there's something you don't like about the show, we don't have to air it. I'm not ever going to force somebody to be a part of what I'm doing if they don't if they don't want to, even after we recorded it. And mm -hmm. what, what I like about what you do is that you've talked to so many people that really can, I think, lift people's hearts. That's always kind of been yeah. the direction. You bring in very well-known people and some people that maybe aren't known at all, but they have mm -hmm. a similar message. And it kind right. of ties in. Mine might be a little paranormal, but mine's also what I call metaphysical, spiritual. Right. And, and I always is about focusing on the love as opposed to you were the one that used to always say, whatever you focus on the longest becomes the strongest, right? That's right. That's right. And so I really bought into that. And it makes a lot of sense that, and it's, I think it's just real. Those are real words that if you're feeling right now scared about what's going on, well, if you focus on that, you're going to get more of that. Yeah. And if you that's turn right. around and, and try, right. try to find something that gives you joy in your life, just think a thought about something. And that's why you had that segment called Power Thoughts. That's what, what that was all about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's how we, we could... shared a lot of fun with that, didn't we? Oh, yeah. We did some goofy things. I would write these. Oh, boy, we had a lot of fun. And if, you know, I still have tapes that you sent me of the stuff we would do in production. You have to have a good time doing this stuff. The Power Thoughts to me came in 1999. been on the air a couple, three years, whatever it was at that point. And it was right before Y2K. Remember, because that was the end of the world then, right? Yeah. 1999. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in the studio getting ready to do a show. And I, I don't like to script things out. I mean, I know who the guests are and all that. I don't really have questions because it just kind of comes. But I, 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 I want to get all this stuff in. And I started writing side notes. And then I thought, I'm never going to get this all into th even three hours live. I'm not going to get all this in. And I decided, well, what if I just came up like a short form one minute thing? And by the time you and I were done, I would write these and voice them and you would produce them. You know, we did 6,500 of those, don't you? Wow. Really? We did. Yes. And I, I went through I, just this past year after all that time. I don't have many much of the audio of those left i don't know if i have any of those left but i found all the scripts and they're all numbered and when i got to 3300 i'm like what the hell <laughs> and it just kept going and going so we did those from 99 uh until uh, i i went to harpo in 06 even though there was a year off they still ran and some of them were repeated but uh, i for years you've heard it and i heard it people would say man that just you know i'd go out to dinner and people would hear my voice. They don't know what we look like for the most part. They'd hear my voice go, oh, man, you, that power thought you did this or that. So I knew we were doing the right thing, and it was such a great collaborative effort. Your, your expertise in production and making things sound a certain way. Uh, and thank God we took all the, <laughs> the bloopers out because we'd be in jail. <laughs> Wouldn't be broadcasting probably, right? No, probably not. But it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was a fun ride, and I'm glad I was a part of it. And I think your book is phenomenal. 
phenomena. Thank you. If people want to get the book, I think you'll gain something from it. You know, what's cool about this, John, too, is that you're kind of, I wouldn't say you're a skeptic, but you're not totally all in on this stuff. It's, no. it's something like, well, okay, I'm going to tell you this story, and then this happened, and, and you tell it very honestly, and how surprised you are about these things. But you're like, uh, sometimes, I don't know if this is accurate, but like an unwilling participant <laughs> that's going along. Yeah, that really is what it is. I'm a reluctant delivery person. I'm very reluctant. I, I don't like it, ever. I mean, that's just the side of me that, that probably is a Chicago... I don't know if a skeptic's even the right word. I'm just a pretty hard-nosed, you know, I don't put any mustard on my hot dog and either, I'm sorry, I don't put any ketchup on my hot dog and neither should you and I don't even know why. So when these things are happening outside of my sphere of how I grew up, even though that's changed a lot, I still don't get it. And like I said, in, in these stories in here, some of them years before I understand even why. So if I, I think if I was given the whole puzzle, I'd screw it up. So I'm only given little pieces. It's always a free will thing. Do I want Do I want to participate or not? And I don't think that it's ever like the world doesn't, you know, stop revolving because I don't. But whatever connection has to be made, and even though I've had, you know, 50 of these things happen that are, you know, sacred moments, messages, memories, and mostly it's shit I can't understand or explain, I'm still, even with all that evidence, I still like, I, I, I don't know about this. And I think that's, that's what makes it authentic for for me and hopefully people that read it. Yeah, and the fact that you that you're also I think that even when it does happen, I mean, your reaction at the time kind of makes it priceless when you <laughs> how you're responding to it is uh, you know, for for people like me that have been around a lot of paranormal things, I kind of embrace those things. And mm -hmm. maybe at first I don't. At, <laughs> And I've had so many synchronistic events that have happened to me in my own way. Um, so when you're in the middle of that, sometimes maybe you don't even realize it until you get yeah. to the end of it. Okay, this is what yeah. this is about. You know, you finally go, whoa, I, that's yeah. what this is all about. Can I, go ahead. Can I share one more that I think needs to be talked about here, mm -hmm. if I may? Sure. Um, that four years at Harpo was, was really important to me. One of the big ahas for me coming out of, you know, the background I had, you and I worked together on various radio stations and projects. I was going back to Chicago to work with this, this monolithic brand in the world, Oprah at the time, and to some degree still is the most recognized, you know, woman in the world. It's dropped off a little bit, but back in the day, back at that time, she was doing the shows and everything. It was a big deal, and, and, and rightfully so. When I go into the first meetings, I thought, it took me about a week to figure out they don't know any more than I do. They really don't. I mean, they're getting paid a hell of a lot more than I ever did, but really they don't know any more than I do. So I can swim in this, in this uh, pond. It's fine. But there's a story in the book uh, that, that took place on Halloween, right around Halloween. Uh, and it was, <laughs> it's the kind of thing that makes me, you know, look at the time. They're like, why was, what was I really doing there? Why was I down there? What was really going on? And it was almost like it took years for this to, to make its way known. So one of the deals was is that we would do, we had many shows moving in, in a lot of different parts. I had teams of people working for me and with me and all that kind of stuff from legal to the engineers and producers and stuff. So at one point I had six or eight people working for me and with me. And we were doing a show with Gene Chatsky. Gene's the, it was at the time the NBC Today Show um, financial person. And we knew each other. She's a Detroit girl. 
and she had done shows with me in the UP. So getting around was no big deal. We talked, we were great. And she was one of the shows we did and it was a daily show. So we were constantly taping and hers was live, but this particular one we had to tape ahead of time. So it was getting ready to do a Halloween show and my guest that I brought on, this was obviously not money related, was a guy named Richard Crow. I actually dedicate the book to Richard Crow. He was a, a historian, a theologist, and he was the original ghost hunter. But this guy was not like a cloak and dagger, weird kind of ghost hunting guy. He was very, very scientific, and I really appreciated that about him. And I'd met him years earlier, and he would do these ghost tours in Chicago. And I thought, you know, he'd be the perfect guy to have on for, you know, a Halloween type thing because there were rumors, even though I had not experienced it, that the Harpo Studios was actually haunted. And the reason was is because before, long before it was the Harpo Studios, it was an armory. And there was an incident in the Chicago River where a, a boat had turned over, and this was like in 1912 or 1914, I believe, uh, was called, um, you know, that all these people were going on a, on a picnic, and the boat had actually rolled over into the Chicago River, and almost a 1,000 people had died, and it was really horrible. And, and uh, so, you know, th there was some talk that there was some, the, the armory was used as a, as a morgue, and a lot of the bodies from this, uh, this terrible disaster, the Eastland disaster, had been laid out there. And so that, but that was across the street. That wasn't in the building that I was in, so why would there be any problems or anything else? So we're doing the show, and uh, Richard's the guest. Jean's in New York on her phone at home in her home office, and Richard is on the phone from wherever he was at in Chicago because we were in a small edit suite. There wasn't room for a guest. And we're talking about all this, and Richard's going on and about, you know, the St. Valentine's Day massacre and all these other things that are going on. And Gene's playing along because she's a good sport, and we're doing the show, and we're done. So we let him go. And we shut off his line. Gene's in New York. We're taking a little breather, and we're all in this. There's four of us in the studio. Uh, and on a speaker that is not connected, is not in use, uh, this voice says, Niels Peterson will not be forgotten. Clear as a bell. Hmm. Now, again, this is another one of those things that all of us hear it. This isn't just me. Jean actually heard it through the talkback speaker in New York. She's like, what was that? And we're all looking at each other. We all clearly heard it. And it says it again. Niels Peterson will not be forgotten. Now, at this point, I'm ready to start drinking heavily, right? <laughs> because... I don't know what this means. I don't know who this person is. We don't know. And Matt was, I call him Sparky, was one of our engineers is in the room. And he writes down the guy's name on a piece of paper because that's what the kind of guy he is. And I'm thinking this, you know, what the what? So I open the door and we need to regroup and figure out what's going on. And it was almost like we opened the door. This whole energy just left. So we took a little break and resumed finishing up and, Pretty soon, word kind of got out that this had happened, and people were like, well, I, I can't explain it. So I went back and called Richard, and I told him what had happened. He goes, oh, that's fantastic. I'm like, what are you, nuts? Hmm. You know, it's not fantastic. It's pretty creepy, and I don't want anything to do with it. And he goes, well, if it happens again, call me. I'll come over. I'm like, well, if it happens again, I ain't staying here. That's just the bottom line. Hmm. So that happened. And as I was writing down, you know, events and experiences, I started writing. I thought, oh, God, I remember that. Now, Teresa uh, is my partner in life. She was in the room that day. 
And when I brought it up to her, she goes, oh, that was just how the energy jumped, right? And that's how the, the transference of energy happened. This, this all happened, and I connected them with a couple of people there, and Matt remembered it, and Katie, who was, was there, uh, also experienced this, and they remembered it, and it was all kind of creepy. So anyway, that all happens. And I remembered that I did some digging and found out that the, this, this, this guy, Niels Peterson, was on the list of people that were laid out across the street in the morgue. But his name when he came here was different, but it was changed to Niels Peterson. It was Niels Rasmussen or something. And that he was buried in Oak Ridge Cemetery. And I'm like, well, now this is years later. wonder where the cemetery is. It turns out walking distance from our house now. And so we went over there and found him in plot 12, row 96, walking distance from where I live. Huh. And he's buried there with his little son, hmm. who was not mentioned. You know, there was no mention of that when, uh, you know, when this all happened. And I went over there, and there's actually a picture of the headstone in the book of Niels and his little son uh, in the book. Uh, and it was just, you know, overwhelming to me to stand at this grave, which is 10 minutes from where I live now. It goes all the way back when this happened, you know, 12 years ago. And so I took a picture of it and did some digging and, you know, no pun intended, and, and he's included in the book. And it's those kind of things that I can't explain. So now I go over there and visit. They've been in the ground for 100 plus years, 106 years, whatever. And I don't know if everyone's ever visited there. And I don't feel like I need, like they're connected to me or, you know, related to me or anything. But it's just one of those things, again, I can't explain. And how is it up that I end up just walking distance from this guy's grave with his son? And what's the, what is that? And the reminder comes that, you know, as long as somebody thinks of you, even 114 years later, or 106 years later, I should say, that you're not forgotten. So maybe that's part of it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. There could be so many answers. I mean, from my perspective, you know, maybe bringing his memory back somehow assists someone else. Uh, by, they're going to read this book. I mean, who knows? Down the road, right? A relative. Yeah. Uh, or just it was part exactly. of him reaching out to you because he knew you had psychic ability. Like you hear often with people that have psychic ability, myself included sometimes, um, that spirits will reach out to you because they know you're the one that can hear them. So it could be as simple as that, John, that, hey, this guy can hear me. I'm going to tell him. <laughs> I'm getting ready. Well, to... It could be. But, but here's the difference. Mm. I heard it. Teresa heard it. Katie heard it. Mm -hmm. Matt heard it. Mm -hmm. We all heard it. Yeah, that's a good point. And for whatever reason, whatever reason, whatever reason that I, I don't know, again, it goes back to being 19 and maybe knowing that I would follow up on it, I did not think about this until I started writing the book 10 years later. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't, I've never, there's no sign if you drive where we're at that says Oak Ridge Cemetery. I had to go all the way around and go, when I looked on the map, I couldn't believe, I'm like, it's right. I could literally walk out of my front door of my house, walk up to maybe a, a eighth of a mile and turn into the cemetery. It's, it's right there. How does that happen? <laughs> and why? And then to walk over to this guy's grave and go, it's right here. And it's, you know, it's that type of stuff that I, it, you know, we talked about this before we did the show that, you know, we don't know what ripple effect we create or why, but we have to. And, and a lot of people died that day on the Eastland. It was a very horrible thing. Mm -hmm. It was like the, right after the Titanic, it was the greatest loss of life uh, in history when it comes to a ship disaster. And a lot of part of the reason the ship rolled over 
is because the safety things that they put in from the Titanic, they applied to a lot of other ships. And this particular ship um, was so top-heavy and had problems, by the time people got on, they were already sealing their, their fate. And so there was a great uh, documentary done on, on the Eastland, and it's, it's very sad. But this particular thing was, I, to this day, I don't know whose voice it was that said, Niels Peterson will not be forgotten. Nor do I understand at that moment when it happened that I'd ever write a book and, and that this would conclude this way. There's mm-hmm. no way to know that. So it's very humbling as well, all this stuff. It's humbling, and then also what I like, John, is that, because me, I want to know. I think most of us want to know. Yeah. And it's like it really is a lesson about letting go at some point. You can't, you're not, maybe you can always get all the answers. I think a lot of times you can if you persist and you desire, but there's going to be other times in life where you won't, and that's kind of what we're here to do, you know? Sometimes you just got to let go, and it'll go where it will. Yep, it goes where it will. And I, I'm never comfortable following it, but I'm appreciative that it, I get the opportunity when it comes. Sometimes there are really big things like this that ended up in the in the book. I'm, I'm just I'm just humbled by this, uh, that the guy's right there and that this all happened and I don't need to know all the rest of it, that I did my part. I had my piece of the puzzle and I put it in place and that's all I can do. And, um, and don't know any more than that. But I also am so humbled by the fact that these things do occur, that the opportunities are given to me, and that if I listen to those little connected dots and I can mm-hmm. kind of see them, even though I don't always get it right, it's worth the effort on my part. So, you know, I, I don't know that I, I'm working on some fiction things. I like to write. I'm a, I'm a pretty decent writer, and, and I'm, I, I take heart in the fact that people can find value in the things that I do outside of just radio. Uh, but this particular book is just um, doing things I never expected it to do, meaning I just wrote it, and you, like you said, you know, you and I had this conversation years ago about putting this together. I was very adamant against it. I didn't see the value in it, and now I see the value in it, which has zero to do with me, which is really interesting. Phenomena, sacred moments, messages, memories, and other sugar I can't explain. <laughs> you know, when I talk about this in traditional radio on the air, I can't say shit, so I say shirt. Oh, okay. And of course, so there you go, other shirts. And then uh, Life Matters with John St. Augustine is your podcast. If they want to get the yep. book, uh, where can they go to find the book? I'm guessing just... Well, the, well don't, say the, don't say the river word because I'm not a fan. The best place to get it uh, is lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. I just put my name in and you'll see the book. There's a, uh, it's like the second one down and you can see what other people thought about it. But uh, it's just a better deal with it's self-published. This is the first time I've ever did a self-published work. The other two with were major publishers, and uh, this way the the uh, it gets direct to me. You can kind of order it direct; it's print on demand. So Lulu dot com is the place to get it. L U L U dot com. Well, John, it was really nice talking to you. I I love the opportunity to speak with you and hear the stories because there's so many wonderful. You know, he's got a lot of stories that are not paranormal, just amazing ones in general. But there is like a a magic about your stories how it takes you from one place. You mentioned Oprah. We can't really get into it, but I remember some of the stories you told yeah. me about her and how you met her and how mm-hmm. you connected with her. And a lot of times it's like mm-hmm. earlier in life you're introduced to these people. I find this in life. And then maybe down the road somewhere you're going to be hooking up with them again. So you never know where Could it's going to lead you. So like with right. many of those stories that you've told me over the years and your different books, he's got great books. You can check out the other ones as well. Thank you so much, John, for being a part of my show. Hey, man. Always great to talk to you. I miss you. Talk soon.